Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 to 16. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens, laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. The second reading carries on from the first reading. It's taken from Isaiah 51, starting at verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk up the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. 
These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads your cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves. You who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Our Father in heaven, you command us in tonight's passage to listen. And so we pray that each of us here would be given that ability, not just to hear your words, but to take them to heart and to base our lives upon them. We pray that in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. Well, tonight we're not going to cover every verse. We wouldn't have time. But let me just say up front, this, I think, is the most unfamiliar chapter, or chapter and a half, out of our whole series. From Isaiah 40 to 55. If you look around churches at the kind of sermon archives... This is the passage they always skip. I texted a friend who preached through this chunk of Isaiah, and he skipped it. Why? Why do people skip this bit? 
Not because it's particularly controversial, actually. There's some bits that are hard to understand, but it's actually full of good news. You do sometimes get that in churches, you know, that there can be ministers and preachers who get to a bit of the Bible they don't really like, and they just skip on. That's a really dangerous thing. I hope we're aware uh, to watch out for that. If we are starting to decide what God can and can't say, well, then we're making God in our image, or, as Isaiah would call it, idolatry. But I don't think that's why people skip chapters 51 and the first half of 52. I think it's because, quite simply, people can't wait to get to Isaiah 53. I think that's the reason. Isaiah 53 is one of the most famous, deservedly so, famous chapters in the Bible. It's an absolutely amazing description of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. And more than just an amazing prediction, hundreds of years before he was born, more than just that, Isaiah 53 is the answer. The answer to the big question that's been building through our whole series. The big question that's built all the way through the book of Isaiah. In fact, the big question of human history, which is this. How can a righteous God ever live with unrighteous people? In Isaiah's terms, how can a holy, holy, holy God live with a people of unclean lips? A people full of compromise, hypocrisy, double standards, lies. And of course, actually, that's right at the heart of the Christian message, the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of life, actually. If you've just come through the doors, this is maybe your first night here. Maybe you're new to Christian things. The bottom line is, how can you get right with God? And no amount of religion or rules or even discipline or kind of uh, punishment and then turning over a new leaf, that's not going to solve it. Israel have already been through all that by the time we get to Isaiah. And they're still not pure The holy God still can't stand their wickedness. And if we're honest, look at our own hearts. Who here could honestly say, I think I'm pure enough by myself for God? So here's the big question. How can peace be made? How can God bring us into his family? How can God accept us? How, 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 how? That's the running question. And actually, that was the question last week left us with as well. So if you were here last week, you will have heard the most kind of graphic description of Zion, that is Jerusalem, God's centerpiece, his city, his chosen place, being pictured as a grieving mother, separated from her children, desolate, alone. Her children in captivity, seeming like God had given up on her. And God promised... I'm going to put this family back together. But the question is, how? How, how, how? We got a clue. We've had lots of clues that the servant is the answer. God has this servant, this secret agent, this super servant who's going to solve the problem. We've learned three things about him. Let me just check. Can you hear me enough for me to carry on at the back? Back row I'm looking for. Thank you. Okay, I'll keep going. We've, we've learned three things about the sermon. Servant, sorry. One, he's obedient. Two, he suffers. Three, he succeeds. 
A suffering, obedient servant somehow succeeds in saving the world. Which just raises the question again, how? How can that save the world? And so you get to the start of our chapter, 51 verse 1. 51 verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, and we think, brilliant, we're about to find out how. How is God going to make us right with him? Maybe he's about to tell us how it works, how his servants' obedience and suffering is going to make us right with God. But here's the thing. That is chapter 53. If you want a trailer, just flick over the page to 53 verse 11. And please do come back next week. It is a crucial chapter. 53 verse 11 summarizes it. Halfway through, it's talking about this servant figure. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. That is, speaking of Jesus, he will carry our sins on the cross. And we will be counted, credited with his righteousness. That's the how. And we'll see it next week in stark and simple clarity. But for tonight, here's the thing. Before we get there, God, by his Holy Spirit, has something to say to us, something different. It turns out before we get to the how question, God thinks we need a big reminder of who. That is a reminder of who is promising this. Whose promises are we listening to? And it's an even higher priority then how is this going to work? And let me just say, that makes this passage, tonight's passage, hugely relevant to the Christian life. You see, there are a number of places where God has made us a promise that we're still waiting for. Scott reminded us of one at the start of the evening. God's made us a promise of a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. That's something we're waiting for. It's not the world we know at the moment. I mean, Remembrance Day last week was a reminder if you needed it. And for any here who are grieving, who are sick, who are suffering with others who are, look, you don't need a reminder that this world is not right. We know that acutely. And God has promised a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness, a world of no wars, no tears, no mourning. And we're waiting. And here's the thing. We don't actually know how he's going to pull it off. We don't know what are the mechanics. We don't know when. We don't know when the moment will come when Jesus returns. But we do know who we know who has made those promises to us and our passage tonight is a call 
to listen to God's promises because we know who's making them. Let me say it again. This gives us our bearings for tonight. Tonight's passage calls us to listen to God's promises and live in light of them. Not because we know exactly how and when it's all going to happen, but because we know who is promising it to us. And that takes us into our first point. You'll see on the back of the handout there's an outline. Don't worry, point one is a lot longer than the other three, so don't panic. The first point is this. Listen, listen, listen to me. I've repeated it three times because that's what God does. And have a look. 51 verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. And then across to verse 4. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. And then verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. I mean, it's emphatic, isn't it? Listen, 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 listen to me. It also makes it pretty ironic that this is the passage that never makes it onto the sermon rotors. This is the one that gets skipped. God says, listen, listen, listen. What does he want us to listen to? Well, the promises he has already been making. Promises to save Zion and save the nations. So first off, verse 3. Verse 3. I'll fill Zion with thanksgiving. So verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. So God says, listen to me, my people. I'm going to bring comfort to Zion. I'm going to put things right in my city. The streets of Zion will be full of people giving thanks. It's actually exactly the promise we had last week. Just flick back a page. Sorry about the page turning. That will calm down in a bit. But just flick it back a bit to 49. Chapter 49. Verse 19. So here, Zion's pictured as this abandoned mother. The children have been taken into custody, into captivity. She's feeling like she's been forgotten. But then verse 19, God promises, Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. Or verse 20, the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room. So 51 verse 3, it's not a new promise. Do you see that? It's just a repeat of what we had last week. So in chapter 51, God is commanding us to listen to what he's already said. Listen to me, I will fill Zion with thanksgiving. And then the second promise from verse 4 onwards of chapter 51, again it's a repeat. The reason why Zion's going to be full of so many children is they're going to be adopted in from the nations. 51 verse 4. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I'll set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation's gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. God says, listen, 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 listen. Not only will I save Zion... But I'm going to gather people from all nations. The coastlands are going to hope for me. And again, that is a repeat. 
If you were here for any of the servant songs, do you remember when God said, it's too light a thing for you to just bring back Israel? I'll make you a light for the nations. You see, God is planning a rescue that is bigger than just bringing the Jewish exiles exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem. In these chapters, we're now pushing beyond that to the ultimate rescue, an international salvation plan. That's why, actually, from chapter 49 onwards, you don't hear the name Babylon again. We're pushing beyond to this permanent, ultimate, radical rescue, a rescue for all nations. In fact, such a massive paradigm shift that God pauses in chapter 51 and says, are you listening? Listen, listen, listen to me. And he is seriously committed to these two promises, filling Zion with thanksgiving, bringing salvation to the nations. He's so committed to it that if you were going to stake your life on whether tomorrow the Milky Way was still there or God's commitment to save a people from all nations was still there, Well, God says, choose my commitment to save. Look at verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. There's a member of our congregation, you may know him, who's heavily involved in astrophysics. I think he probably is aware of more stars than I can even imagine. God says, look at everything you can see on a starry night above your head. Or look down at your feet. Consider that very solid feeling ground. All of that is less permanent than my commitment to save. That will perish before I change plan. We've had pretty strong examples this week of dogged, dogged leadership, haven't we? Theresa May, I mean, sticking to her guns, you've got to say. Meet the living God who from eternity has had a plan, a much better plan to save than a kind of compromised checkers plan. God is utterly committed In fact, he staked his reputation on it. So ever since Abraham in the Bible, Genesis 12, he's promised to bless people from all nations. So his character is on the line. His righteousness would be in question if he doesn't follow through on the plan. That's why verse 5 puts righteousness and salvation next to each other. My righteousness draws near, my salvation's gone out. Or end of verse 6, my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. God can't break his word. He can't lie. His righteousness requires that he delivers on these promises to save a people. Of course, his righteousness also requires that he doesn't bend the rules or corrupt his justice. But that's next week. That's the how question. Come back for that. 
Tonight, it's just who. Listen, listen, listen to me. I will rescue Zion. I'm committed to gathering a people from all nations. Let's step back. Why do the exiles need a reminder to listen to this? Well, just think about it. Their circumstances were saying the complete opposite of what God promised. Zion was in pieces, smouldering rubble. The exiles were a tiny minority stuck in Babylon. They were weak. They were powerless. They were captives. They really were a pathetic, tiny minority in a powerful pagan culture. And they were mocked by the people around them. Do you know that? We know that from Psalm 137, for example, that in Babylon, their their captors taunted them, asked them to, oh, go on, go on, sing us one of those songs about Zion. What's that one? Um, Glorious things of thee, Zion has spoken, city of our God. I mean, how pathetic when it's in rubble. How does anyone actually believe that stuff? I'm sure they said that in Babylon. Verse 7 talks about it. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. That is, don't be afraid of people who laugh at you, saying that you're wasting your life on pipe dreams, fantasies. The people who say that the God of the Bible is history. Don't be dismayed when they take the mickey out of you for believing what the Bible promises, because it looks unlikely right now. Because, verse 8, remember who is talking. Who am I and who are they? Verse 8, for the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. God says, People come and go. They're like flowers in a field. They're like grass in a heat wave. People's words perish. But God's salvation plan, his plan to gather the nations for himself, is a permanent commitment. Goes from generation to generation. So the Victorians, it was around then. The Neo-Babylonian Empire, it was around then. Millennials, it's around at the moment. The Romans, the nomadic ancient Near Easterns, when Abraham was around. The 20th century AD, with its wars and its carnage. The 8th century BC, when this was written, with its wars and its carnage. See, people who ridicule this promise, they come and go. God's plan is permanent. And again, it's just so relevant to us. The exiles needed reassurance to stick with his promises. The gap between their grim experience and the amazing hope he offered, it just seemed too big to be real. And we sometimes face that feeling, don't we? I mean, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. This morning we heard about the resurrection hope, that death won't be the end. By the time you get to the end of the book of Isaiah, this promise about Zion has become a promise of a new heavens and a new earth. 
A promise where there'll be no more death, tears. And we know the feeling of being surrounded by people who think that's ridiculous. Some of us, at the moment, feel circumstances that make it hard to believe. For the first readers of Isaiah 53, the servant's arrival lay hundreds of years ahead of them. God gave them chapter 51 to keep them trusting while they wait. He gives them some evidence. Just flick the page back to chapter 51, verse 2. He points back to his track record. We skipped over this earlier, but it's important. Verse 2. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply you. God says, look, exiles, you think the odds are looking bad for you at the moment. You're a tiny minority. How is Zion ever going to be filled with (laughs) full to bursting? Well, remember back to Abraham. I mean, he was just one guy. He wasn't even a remnant. He and Sarah were long past it medically to have children. And yet, I committed to blessing them. He took me at my word, he left his old home, he trusted my promise, and I turned him into a great nation. In fact, you're only sitting here, exiles, because you're a chip off the old block. Verse 1. All his circumstances were screaming, this can't be possible. And yet I delivered on my promise. That was for them. They could look back to Abraham. We could look back to so much more, can't we? I mean, we're sitting the far side of Cyrus, who was predicted a couple of chapters ago, conquering Babylon, just like predicted. We sit the far side of the servant, Jesus Christ, turning up in human history and spreading light to the nations, to the coastlands, to places like Scotland. I think Isaiah, if he were here tonight, would say... Well, how did you end up sitting here? God has proven himself again and again, time and time again, to deliver on his promises. And so he says, listen to me. Listen, listen, listen to me. That's our first point. It's really our main point this evening. If you're worried there are three more, don't worry, they'll be very brief. But that's our big thing to hold on to tonight. We've got to listen to and trust God's promise because we'll get here by the end. That will shape the way we live. But let's carry on at higher speed, tracking through the passage. So verse 9, God's people appeal to him in verse 9 to start flexing his muscles straight away, right now, today. Verse 9, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in days of old. The generations of long ago. I think here they're raising the issue of timing. This is the question of when. Look, Lord, you've, you've promised Zion will be filled with singing, and we believe you, but can you just do it now? Flex your muscles, stretch out your arm, save us now, or at least tell us when. Do what you did back in the Exodus rescue. So Rahab's just a nickname for Egypt. It's talking about Exodus. Lord, wake up. And act like you used to. Or at least tell us when. But here's the thing. 
The passage doesn't engage with the when question. God is going to flex his arm. If you look on to 52 verse 10, where we're going to end, 52 verse 10, that says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So it's going to happen. God is going to use his arm to save the world. And it's certain, it's all described in the past tense, it's already been decided. But he doesn't say when. Doesn't say when because he doubles down on who. Who are you going to trust? This is our second point. It's really the same point, just in slightly different words. Point two, remember who I am. 51 verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who's made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? The point is very simple, isn't it? Remember who I am. I am the I am, the the creator, the sustainer, the one who never goes away, the one who cannot die, the one who never sleeps, asking me to wake up. Verse 15, I'm the creator again. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I am the creator God, the great I am, the one who comforts you. And they need comfort because they're scared of people. Verse 12, who are you that you're afraid of man who dies? Verse 13, you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor. When he sets himself to destroy. I think if we think about the historical situation, we can have some sympathy with them. I guess most of us here have not even got close to knowing what it would be like to be under attack, to be wrenched from your home, taken into subjection in another land. I mean, the scariest stuff we tend to face is, I don't know, a bit of silent treatment an awkward pause when we talk about Jesus. Maybe there is the occasional angry outburst at something that Christians believe. But the people trying to cling to these promises did know just how scary the wrath of an oppressor can be when he sets himself to destroy. But again, God says, people don't last. Assyria didn't last. They were conquered by Babylon. Babylon didn't last. They were conquered by Persia. Will the UK last? Who knows? Not permanently. Individual leaders certainly don't last. People are here today, gone tomorrow. So verse 13, you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? You see, and this takes a bit of concentration, so zoom in if you've been drifting. You see, God's real problem was never the wrath of nations, whether Babylon or someone else. Those nations were only allowed to attack and defeat Israel because of God's judicial wrath against the nation, his people. The wrath of people is not a lasting problem because the people go away. The wrath of God, that really is a problem. See that? God does not go away. 
You find yourself on the wrong side of the self-existent creator of this universe, the I am, then you're in serious trouble. And of course, the amazing news of this series is that God is determined to find a way back for people. He's committed to save, save from the nations. And verse 16 reminds us of how he's going to do it. Verse 16, it's just a hint here. We'll get much more, obviously, next week. This single verse 16 is actually addressed to God's servant. Uh, Just like the servant, he's going to have God's words in his mouth in verse 16. Just like the servant in chapter 49, he's a hidden weapon. Uh, Just like the servant, he's going to bring God and his people back together. In fact, he's going to establish a whole new heavens and earth. Verse 16, let me read it. I've put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. See, God does have a plan for putting people back together with him. Just a foretaste here. We'll see more of it next week. That's point two. Remember who I am. But then very briefly, point three, having had a quick glimpse of the servant, or now point three, we see the aftermath of his work. Get up, Jerusalem. You will have peace, not wrath. Get up. You will have peace, not wrath. It's an amazing picture, this one. It's one of the pictures you wouldn't expect to find in the Bible. Jerusalem is pictured as a drunk in the gutter. And the challenge is rousing the drunk. Verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who've drunk from the hand of the Lord. But here's the thing, the cup wasn't full of alcohol. The cup Jerusalem has drunk, verse 17, is anger. The cup of God's wrath. You've drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jerusalem's in a bad way because they've been facing the anger of God. His just response to their continual rebellion. Verse 19, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They're full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. It's a desperate picture, actually. That there's no one to help. Verse 18, verse 18, there's none to guide her among all the sons she's born. There's none to take her by the hand among all the sons she's brought up. The city can't pick herself up, and her children certainly can't pick her up. But just look at this. Verse 22, an extraordinary moment of hope. Verse 22, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. It's an absolutely remarkable verse, because who pleads the cause of Israel? Who represents them? God himself. Look down. Who removes the cup of anger? God himself. I'm only going to say the next sentence once, but it's one of the most important sentences you can say. God himself steps in 
to turn his wrath to peace. And from then on, peace is exactly what's on offer. 52 verse 7, have a look. How beautiful upon the mountains are the the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The good news isn't just that God reigns, that's never been in question. The good news is that God reigns and brings you peace. That God's coming to Zion, not in judgment and justice, but with salvation for the nations. Peace. You see, God will flex his muscles. Verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And that sounds like a wonderful place to end our passage. Point one, listen to me. I'm going to save. Point two, remember who I am, the creator. Point three, I'm so definitely going to save that I can describe my plan in the past tense. I'm going to turn wrath to peace. And so you'd expect it to close with a song. Except verse 11 doesn't close with a song, but gives us our closing application, which is this, verse 11 of chapter 52. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. The closing note is to get out of the world you were stuck in. Initially to get out of Babylon, to come back to Jerusalem. But we're pushing far beyond Babylon now. Babylon's not mentioned by name because this is pushing beyond. This is saying, be ready to live for where God's going. Come out of the idolatrous world you've, you, you're currently in. Join God on the way to Zion. And it's striking that they're told not to bring some of Babylon with them. Don't pack your idols along for the ride, verse 11. Don't bring the immorality or the idolatry of the world you've come from with you. The Apostle Paul picks up those words, speaking to the Corinthian church, a really worldly church, and he challenges them and says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. That's Isaiah 52. He's not saying we should avoid people who don't know Jesus. Absolutely not. We're to share the good news with them. But he is saying we should live with the values of where we're going, not the values where we came from. He puts it like this, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Or as Peter puts it, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the coming day of God? Because according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. With this I close. When God says, listen, listen, listen to me, it's not like a concert or a lecture or some entertainment where we sit there and think, oh, that was nice. God speaks his promises so that we build our lives upon them. The chapter starts saying, listen to where I'm going. I am building this Zion. The chapter ends saying, so come on out. Depart from the idolatrous world you've, you've, you've been exiles in and live for Zion. Or as Peter puts it, live for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We are to be people who live for where God is going, not where we've come from. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, help us to be those who live by faith and not just by sight. Help us to be those who take you at your word. Help us most of all to be those who fix our gaze on a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells on your heavenly Zion. And so help us to be people whose lives are characterised by your standards, not those of the world we came from. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.